My name is Anja Plomien, and I am an assistant professor at the Gender Institute, and I have the pleasure of chairing today's event. But before I introduce tonight's speaker, as well as a guest from the Feminist Theory, one of the editors, um, I will briefly set out the running order for the proceedings. If you want to join tonight's debate on Twitter, the hashtag for today's lecture is hashtag LSEConnell. Please put your phones on silent as so not to disrupt this event. This event is also being recorded and we hope it will be made available as podcast subject to there no being any technical difficulties. And as usual, um, the lecture uh, will end after an hour or so, uh, and we will have um, an opportunity for the audience to ask questions. Now, before I, I introduce Professor Rowan Connell, I'd like to ask Celia Roberts, who is a, one of the editors of Femis Theory, to present a prize, an essay prize, awarded by the journal. Great. Well, welcome, everyone. Um, first, I'd just like to thank the Gender Institute and our colleagues there for um, co-hosting this event with us. So thanks very much. It's lovely to be here at the LSE. Um, yeah, so I'm Celia Roberts. I'm the co-director of the Centre for Gender, Studies, Women, Gender and Women's Studies at Lancaster University and one of the editors of Feminist Theory. Uh, my co-editors are Stacey Gillis, Carolyn Pedwell, Sarah Kemba, Maureen McNeil, and our admin assistant, who many of you will know, is Katie Cooper. We couldn't do it without her. So Feminist Theory is an interdisciplinary uh, journal, uh, theoretically informed, uh, but we publish a wide range of articles, empirical articles, theoretical articles, um, etc., we, swear we just had our meeting with Sage today, and we're doing well. Readership's going up, citations going up, all very good. But I just really wanted to say uh, that none of this work is possible without the work of the anonymous reviewers, and I'm sure there's many of you in the audience. Um, you know, in a, in a ref-driven world, we find it increasingly difficult to find people to review papers because, of course, this is invisible work. Um, so I just want to really thank people for doing that work and to really say that we appreciate the hard work that goes into reviewing articles and please uh, keep doing it. <coughs> so in 2013, uh, we thought we'd inaugurate a prize. I know, and some of us have got concerns about whether we should be giving prizes, but we thought it's, we've got some money, so let's give a prize and encourage good submissions. And, you know, there's not enough feminist prizes uh, compared to other kinds of prizes. So it's my uh, pleasure uh, to award the prize for the best article in uh, 2014 to uh, Maria Fannin. Here she is. She's got to run screaming to the front. So, Marie, I just tell you a little bit about Maria's article is called Placental Relations. Uh, it's a very interesting article. And Sasha Rose Neal, who was our judge this year, wrote the following. She said, the author succeeds in pushing forward feminist discussions of biology, maternal embodiment and pregnancy in a way that generatively unhooks feminist theory from old debates about biology and essentialism and that contributes to new ways of theorizing relationality. And she says, get this, Maria, this is good. This is an article that will, I think, be widely read and discussed by feminist scholars. So please check it out. It's really, really interesting. It's quite a tough competition to win. 
So, as uh, you know, if you read our journal, we do quite a lot of special issues and we, we really love doing that work. We've got a couple coming out um, soon, one called Doing Feminism Event Archive Techne and another called Sex, Pleasure and Coercion in the Fin de Siècle. And then another special issue that I just wanted to mention as a segue into tonight's event is a special issue on Southern Feminist Theory, um, which I'm co-editing with Raywim which is inspired by Raywin's paper, which has been published in Feminist Theory of the same title. Um, so in this paper, Raywin challenges us to think about the structural barriers impeding publication of feminist theory produced in the global south. Uh, so she does a rather cutting... Uh, critique of Feminist Theory Journal, which is kind. Uh, <laughs> no, but we took it on the chin. Uh, and points out that of 122 articles published in Feminist Theory over the last, I think it was five years, only 11 were, from, were not from the UK, the US or Europe. So that also included Australia. So that, I think that is fairly typical um, of similar journals. We just had our meeting with Sage, as I said, and in 2014... We discovered, uh, looking at the stats, that although we'd received articles from 17 countries, we had actually only published articles from five countries. So we're, you know, publishing from the UK, we're publishing from the US, we're publishing from Scandinavia. Um, so uh, Raywin's challenged us in this article to think really seriously about how we operate as a journal and how our journal might be participating in these structural barriers or indeed reproducing them. So we thought it would be really great to have a special issue on Southern Feminist Theory. Um, we've had a really interesting time calling for papers, receiving articles. We've got 12 articles under review at the moment from South America, from Africa, from Southeast Asia, and from Eastern Europe. And I just wanted to take this opportunity to pay tribute to Raywin for raising this issue and thank her for raising this difficult and important issue with us and even in her retirement, investing the time and energy to help us get that special issue off the ground. Um, it really wouldn't have happened without her, so that's a really great step forward for our journal. So thanks for coming tonight. It's really great to see people here. Uh, please think about sending your work to us. We really want to hear more, get, receive more submissions. We really value your work. And as I say, I'm thanking you retrospectively, some of you, and in advance, other ones, for all the anonymous work you put into reviewing. It's really, really important, and I think it's really important to recognize the value of that labour. We couldn't have a feminist academic community without the work of anonymous refereeing. So it's really important um, to recognise that. So that's enough from me. I'm going to hand over to Anya to introduce Raywin. Thanks very much. Thank you, Celia. Now it is my great pleasure to introduce to you Professor Rowan Connell, Professor Emerita at the University of Sydney. Often when introducing eminent scholars such as our speaker tonight, we preface the introduction that an introduction is what they require the least, as their work has such a strong and lasting resonance in the academic, policy and activist communities with which they engage. And the prominence or volume of their work either speaks for itself or one cannot possibly do them justice in a brief summary. But this constitutes a paradox in, in so much as scholars such as Rowan Connell have very much earned a good introduction. Now, I am very much looking forward to hearing tonight's lecture and 
I am sure you are as well. So I will not set myself for this impossible task of, me, of mentioning every important intervention that Rowan Connell has made to furthering our understanding of the various issues she has engaged with. But I will name a few. Class Conflict, Power and Hegemony was published, for example, through the ruling class, ruling culture in 1977. Work on sexual politics emerged in Gender and Power that was published in 1987. Themes of feminism in Staking a Claim, published together with Suzanne Fransway and Diane Court, were published in 1989. Masculinities in Masculinities were published in 1995. Gender and gender relations were engaged in gender in a publication from 2002. And most recently, work on social thought, science, and politics in Southern theory of 2007 and equality of 2011. So please, let's hear more from Rowan Connell and welcome her to talk on decolonizing gender. Thank you. Well, thank you very much to the Gender Institute and to Feminist Theory for the invitation to be here. And thank you for coming along to join the conversation on this beautiful spring day. Um, I'm a long way from home at the moment. I know that some of you are also a long way from home. And um, that, in a way, is where I want to start the discussion by thinking about place and belonging and distance. So I'll start out by showing you a picture of the continent I do come from. No? <laughs> Try again. Yes. Um, okay, this is home to me, or at least a part of, the, part of home, a picture I took myself. Uh, of course, um, showing part of the Australian landscape as different from Europe as I could make it. Um, yes, we do have kangaroos in Australia, and no, you can't see them in the picture. Why? Because they're hiding. <laughs> and <laughs> I know that's an old goon show joke. <laughs> it really is. Um, but uh, it's also true because kangaroos, contrary to the claims of the Australian tourist industry, are actually nocturnal animals, um, <clears throat> basically, who come out at dusk. Um, the issue that I want to, to raise and explore in the next three quarters of an hour is not a new one. Um, and I don't claim to be you know, breaking radical new ground um, in the work that's been kindly mentioned and which I want to expand on a bit uh, today. Um, in fact, the issue of the predominance of the global north uh, in international feminism uh, was articulated as long ago as 1975, International Women's Year, uh, was articulated at the first of the United Nations conference, World Conferences on Women uh, that year in Mexico City. And it's been explored in political 
debates in the uh, United Nations forums ever since. It's been explored through the work of post-colonial feminist thinkers such as Chandra Tabladi Mahanti, whose work I'm sure will be very well known here. Um, so this is not a new issue to place on the table for the first time. But I think we are now um, in a position where we can understand the issue uh, more deeply, where we have new resources for understanding it, and where, of course, we have a changed political scene, as illustrated by your recent uh, uh, election result and our dire experience of uh, right-wing government uh, recently in Australia. Um, so we do face a new intellectual and political scene in which questions of global social relations uh, become important to understand in order to uh, take intellectual, uh, feminist intellectual work forward. The way I'm going to approach this in um, classic uh, dramatic form, I have a three-act uh, story to tell you. Uh, I want, first of all, to explore how we might understand the problem. Uh, I then want to look at some of the resources, especially some of the newer resources that we have for dealing with it. And finally, I want to think about the process of moving feminist intellectual work forward in the light of global social relations in the realm of knowledge. That's the, the line of march. <clears throat> so to start out with the nature of the problem, and I want to recall that moment in the 1970s when contemporary feminist intellectual projects crystallised in the form that we now know them, when women's studies as a field of scholarship uh, and theoretical thinking was created, mutating later into gender studies, uh, driven by movement activism. This is a picture of International Women's Day March in that year in Australia uh, at a time when abortion issues was a major source of, of activism. That's a march down the middle, the main street in Sydney. Um, so a, a, a shift in knowledge began under the pressure of social movements which brought into the production of knowledge new groups of producers who had not been much represented in the organised production of knowledge before and which began to generate a profound epistemological shift through the critique of the patriarchal character of existing forms of organised knowledge and the demand to revolutionise this domain um, by the insertion of women's experience, women's perspective, feminist critique and new forms of investigation and theoretical thinking. Now, I do want to emphasise right at the start that this was a revolutionary project, not only on the streets in terms of revolutionising existing gender orders, but also in the domain of knowledge, challenging dominant perspectives, methodologies, epistemologies um, in the order of knowledge itself. And I want to emphasise that at the start 
because I'm now going to criticise it and say how um, the, the problem that that formation of knowledge created at that time actually represents. Um, and this was formulated um, in, uh, as far as I'm concerned, most sharply and helpfully um, by a feminist scholar from Algeria, now working in the Global North, uh, Mania Lazrig, whom I'm sure some of you will know, who published in 1990 a couple of very important articles um, talking about feminism and the experience of Algerian women, in which she identified what she called a significant error in feminist scholarship, a significant error uh, in mainstream feminist scholarship. Um, she showed that the way feminist scholars had interpreted the situation of women in Islamic North Africa. She's mainly talking about French scholarship, uh, but the, the same point applies to English language scholarship. That the interpretation had been offered mainly in terms of the difference uh, that marked uh, women in Algeria or North Africa more generally. And that difference was interpreted in cultural terms, basically through the uh, identification of these women as located within Islam. Um, so from that structure, if you like, of the um, feminist ways of talking about the situation of such women, she concluded that women in Algeria faced, in fact, two struggles in developing feminist perspectives. One was the struggle against local patriarchy, but the other was the struggle against the, north, the feminist paradigm which had been imported from the global north and which governed the sphere, if you like, in which they had to produce knowledge, um, strategic debates, um, and ways, broader ways of thinking. Now, I think in that critique, uh, Mania Lazarig put her finger exactly on what is, in fact, a worldwide, a global problem about the construction of knowledge about gender. Feminist thought, as it moved into the academy, and there were many debates about this in the 1970s, a lot of critique from movement feminism of the what would happen uh, when feminists moved into the academy and began developing courses and programs and journals, forms of knowledge within academic framework. There was a lot of debate about that and what would be gained and lost by doing that. But what none of those discussions, or none that I can recall, um, addressed was the fact that they, moving into the academy meant moving into a global economy of knowledge which was structured in a very particular way. Um, and I want to illustrate this with a map which was, has been published by a couple of ingenious... Sorry, that's Mania Lazarek. I forgot to show you a picture. A couple of ingenious geographers who um, developed a map of the world which shows countries in size proportional to the number of scientific journals that they publish uh, in all fields of knowledge, okay, humanities, 
social sciences as well as natural sciences and mathematics. And look, the map hardly needs interpretation. Um, here is the United States. Here is Britain. The only significant you know, counterweight to the Anglophone North Atlantic is the rest of Western Europe. Um, there's poor little Australia and its kangaroos. All of Latin America, okay? Um, there's South Africa, rest of America. Okay, you get the picture. Uh, there's a huge predominance of publication um, um, of, in, in, and this, of course, is true of almost all individual disciplines, true, too. Um, a huge predominance of the global north um, in the crucial, in the strategic form of the circulation of knowledge. Um, and lest you think that we can escape from this, here is the league table for, for journals in gender studies. And um, in terms of citation rates, um, and the publishers of this league table have very helpfully shown the country of publication of the journal in the column on the right. You look down at it, and every damn one of them is published either in the United States or, or Great Britain, every one. Um, so that's gender studies uh, really fits into the mainstream pattern in the publication uh, respect. Now, we can explain this in very simple terms. Obviously, there's more wealth, there's larger university systems in North America and in Europe than anywhere else. Uh, these are richer countries than is true of any other region in the world. We can explain it in familiar ways like that. But there's more to it than that. Um, and this, I think, is a, a useful index if you ever need uh, to make these... Um, arguments in a forum where only quantitative arguments count, um, which is very common now in academic life, uh, the quantitative evidence is right there, let me tell you. Um, but this has history. Um, this is not just you know, something that's, that's come up in, in recent time. Um, the person who to, to in, in my sort of grappling with these issues, uh, produce the most insightful and, and uh, helpful analysis of this problem is a West African philosopher called Pauline Huntonji, uh, who's not widely known in the global north, indeed, he's well known in Africa, not widely known in the global north or in other parts of the global periphery. But his work, I think, is profound and important. Intanchi argues that uh, we, as intellectual workers, as knowledge producers, we are working in a global economy of knowledge which is structured quite like the material, uh, the global material economy, and has its historic roots in the 500 years of European imperial expansion, the creation of colonial empires and post-colonial neoliberal globalisation, which in many ways brought the same structures of power 
wealth and control into the contemporary world. They didn't die with formal empire. And Tanji further argues that the global economy of knowledge is marked by a global division of labour in which there is a main division between the global metropole, the global north, the countries of Europe and North America that were the centres of worldwide empire in the period of formal colonialism and the colonised or semi-colonised world. It's a division of labour in the realm of knowledge between theory and data collection. So if you look back into the history of science, and biology, geological science, even astronomy, you'll find that a great deal of the data on which European scientific advances were built actually came from the colonised world, from the navigators, the explorers, the colonial administrators, the missionaries, uh, and then professional investigators who were sent out and brought back to the metropole masses and masses of data about everything from the social lives of the people encountered on the colonial frontier to astronomical observations, to geological observations, to biological um, specimens that were brought back. Sydney, the the city that I live in, was originally called Botany Bay. Why? Because on the voyage of exploration that brought the first British sailors to the east coast of Australia in 1770, a mere 40,000 years after the Aboriginal people discovered it. Um, So we were taught in primary school that Captain Cook discovered the east coast of Australia. Um, The... um, uh, a, A key part of the crew was made up of a couple of uh, biological collectors, one of whom was Joseph Banks, later became president of the Royal Society in this fair city. Um, And they were so astonished at the wealth of botanical specimens uh, that they found at the first place they came to land that they named the place Botany Bay. And that's the origin uh, of the... um, the the usual British view of Australia for the next 100 years or so, a dumping ground for convicts. Um, But um, Banks and Solander, the two uh, biologists on that trip, uh, were merely early examples of a whole, you know, uh, minor industry of data collection from the colonised world. And even more famous people than Joseph Banks were involved in this, Uh, Alexander von Humboldt, for instance, uh, collected an amazing wealth of biological, geological uh, data uh, from his travel in South and Central America. That's the origin of modern climate science, actually, was that expedition. Um, And no lesser person than Charles Darwin sailed around the world collecting geological and biological evidence, came back to Britain and 20 years later wrote The Origin of Species. So this was a huge enterprise, collecting data from the colonised world, bringing it back, and in the institutions of the global metropole, and that meant not only the universities, but botanical gardens, scientific institutes, government agencies of one kind or another, this data was collated, combined with local data, 
theorised, conceptualised, organised, um, systematic methodologies were developed and then published. So that in the period of colonial rule, a, an economy of knowledge was set up based on a division of labour between the place of the production of theory, that was the global metropole, and the place of the collection of data, which was principally the colonised world, and which was also the place of the application of the scientific knowledge once organised. Now, there's more to the analysis of the global economy of knowledge, uh, but uh, to that, which we don't have time to go into in, in any depth, but two things I think are particularly important. One is that that economy of knowledge was set up in a way so as to exclude mostly the other forms of knowledge which existed in the colonised world from the realm of authorised theory and organised knowledge. So there was a process of discrediting of other knowledges um, and to uh, a, a, a process of legitimising only relatively narrow forms of knowledge production. And secondly, a, a particular, if you like, um, work situation and intellectual attitude uh, was created among intellectual, the intellectual workforce both in the global south and in the normal, global north, though there were different attitudes. The attitude that was created for intellectual workers in the colonised world, the global south, broadly speaking, was one of intellectual dependency. And that is still the case. Huntonji has a nice phrase for this. He calls it extroversion, that as an intellectual worker in Africa or South America or South Asia or, for that matter, in Australia, you are oriented to intellectual authority that comes from outside your own society. So in order to function as a sociologist or a geologist or a biologist, you must read the journals published in the Global North. You must learn the methodologies that those journals produce. Uh, ideally, if you want to advance in your production, you should go to the Global Metropole and study in one of the major departments or research institutes there and get your qualifications, or at any rate, your um, further in-service training there. And ideally, you want to publish in those journals. So it's a major asset for your career in the majority world, the global periphery where four-fifths of the world's people actually live, it's a major advantage in an intellectual worker's career to have published in leading journals, in those top 20 journals, in the global metropole. And, I mean, that is explicit in the promotion criteria for many institutions. It's not just an informal understanding. So that attitude of extroversion becomes normative for intellectual workers in most parts of the world. For the global north, however, a different kind of attitude is produced. This is, you know, the, the, the place where the theory is generated, uh, the society um, which is, in fact, central to the global economy of knowledge. And the characteristic attitude that is produced by global relations of knowledge in the global north 
is one which, to put it bluntly, is one of self-satisfaction. Um, that is, being satisfied intellectually with the intellectual frameworks, methodologies that are produced in the local Global North context. And that means, therefore, that the characteristic attitude in the Global North produces an impoverished picture of the realm of knowledge. And in this case, in gender studies, that is also true. That if you read the textbooks of gender theory produced in the Global North or read the journals, by and large, you don't come across perspectives on gender that are produced outside this economy of knowledge. And therefore, intellectual workers in the Global North are liable to miss or have only very marginal awareness of the wealth of intellectual production that actually occurs around the Global South. So, for instance, many uh, very good gender studies scholars in the Global North thinking about, you know, uh, who, who spend a lot of time getting up to date, um, knowing who the important thinkers are, may never even have heard of someone like Helea Safiotti, a wonderful feminist scholar from Brazil, most of whose work is published in Portuguese, most of it published in Portugal, uh, sorry, in Brazil, um, who produced a magnificent uh, piece of historical sociology of gender, a book called Women in Class Society, published in 1969, that is, before the major texts of women's liberation in the global north. Um, it was actually later translated into English, at least part of it was translated uh, into English by a Marxist group in North America who left out uh, a couple of key chapters, uh, one on the Catholic Church um, and one on the women's suffrage movement because presumably they thought this wouldn't interest North American Marxists. But here is a magnificent scholar. I mean, she, she's recently died. Uh, she continued to produce really important work, a lot of it concerning gender-based violence. Um, she is, I think, one of the most important feminist intellectuals of the 20th century. And because her work was in Brazil, because it was mostly published in Brazil, she's I mean, famous in Brazil, of course, known only to regional specialists in the global north. And there are many other people of whom that could be said. So that is my sketch of the problem that, that we have to face and think about and find practical ways of dealing with. So I now want to turn to um, what I see as the resources that we now have for dealing with that problem in better ways than we have in the past. Firstly, um, we have now a lively debate, a lot of it outside of feminist scholarship, um, a lot of it conducted without very much awareness of the issues that feminist scholarship raise. But there is a good deal of debate uh, about global issues in the production and circulation of knowledge. There is, for instance, the decolonial school of analysis, mainly coming from Latin America. There are many indigenous knowledge projects that has become an important cultural movement 
in the last generation in many parts of the world, including Australia. We have, as everyone will know, the subaltern studies movement that came from India has also been taken up in Latin America. And we have what I call southern theory, which is largely knowledge that has come out of the colonial encounter itself. And one of the important general effects of these debates going on at the same time, often without much reference to each other, I blush to say, um, is the increasing acknowledgement of the multiple forms of knowledge that do exist in the world. Increasing critique, if you like, of that degree of self-satisfaction which was built into the metropolitan construction of knowledge in the um, global economy of knowledge. We are gradually, with a lot of strife and difficulty, moving past that set of assumptions. Much quicker in some areas of knowledge than others, um, but it is a broad shift, I think, that's going on and gives us intellectual resources for dealing with gender issues. And I want very briefly to identify three of those forms of knowledge um, that are now you know, the subject of, of significant uh, debates and development. Uh, firstly, indigenous knowledge projects, as I mentioned it, um, where um, we, <clears throat> we see... Um, gender issues coming up in ways that look very unlike um, the organisation, the expression of knowledge about gender in the global economy, in the mainstream economy of knowledge. Here, for instance, is a painting done by three women from one of the Aboriginal communities in the central desert region of Australia. Um, as you'll recognise, it's part of a, an art movement which has now actually become... Uh, you know, quite, uh, quite commercially successful worldwide. This particular painting, which is called Sugar Leaf Dreaming, um, tells a story, a particular story. It's associated with a particular ritual, a particular place, which is characteristic of, of Indigenous art in, in Australia. And it tells a story which is essentially about gender issues um, and embeds knowledge about gender issues. It is, in fact, a story about two young people, a young man and a young woman, who fall in love with each other but are forbidden to marry because they come from the wrong kinship groups. So it's a kind of Romeo and Juliet story, if you like. Um, but where Shakespeare and Shakespeare's sources couldn't think of any resolution of such a problem except killing everyone else off at the end of the play, <laughs> Aboriginal communities in Central Desert uh, of Australia know better uh, they know how to handle this kind of issue. And this story embeds that knowledge of how such issues arise and what can be done about it. And there is a ceremony involved um, which is associated with particular places of land. The three stripes in the middle of the painting represent poles that are set up to mark the dancing place where the ceremony occurs. I haven't got time to explain the details of the painting, but... I do want to make the point that there are other ways of expressing knowledge um, which are very characteristic of Indigenous knowledge projects. But Indigenous knowledge can also come into much more familiar territory in our 
uh, most familiar economy of knowledge. So I also want to mention the work from Aotearoa, New Zealand, um, of the indigenous knowledge uh, projects there, the Kaupapa Māori uh, knowledge, uh, project, knowledge Project. Um, this is Linda Tuhiwai-Smith, one of the well-known figures in that knowledge project, who has published a wonderful book, which I'm sure um, some of you do know, called Decolonizing Methodologies, now in its second edition. And if anyone is interested in methodologies and doesn't know that book, race out to the bookshops. Um, it's an important um, and now quite influential text uh, which draws on Indigenous knowledge projects and experience in Aotearoa, New Zealand, to make general arguments about the character of methodology, essentially, in the social sciences. second form of knowledge that's worth recognising, though, I won't dwell on this, um, is knowledge constructed within alternative universalisms, which is not a kind of locally-based indigenous knowledge project, uh, which makes universal claims and hopes to speak to a universal audience, but which is different from the Eurocentric economy of knowledge. Um, and perhaps the most um, striking example and pertinent example of that, uh, I'm sorry, uh, I wanted to show you uh, also, uh, Eileen Morton Robinson, an Indigenous scholar uh, and activist uh, in Australia who's been involved in the critique of white feminism uh, in Australia. Um, the, the most pertinent uh, alternative universalism, I guess, is the project of Islamic feminism or Islamic feminisms, as we should say, because there are many versions um, of that kind of project. This is Fatima Mianissi from Morocco, uh, who's published important texts, pioneering texts, which used Islamic knowledge techniques to argue about questions of gender equality. Um, but there is a range of other projects right across the Islamic majority world, from northwest Africa as far east as Indonesia, um, where uh, feminist uh, Islamic projects uh, are also found. And thirdly, there are the knowledge projects that arouse that arise uh, in or from the colonial encounter itself, from the process of colonization, from anti-colonial struggle, um, and from grappling with global inequalities in the post-colonial world. Now, this is work that I became aware of, particularly in terms of gender studies, um, through uh, research on masculinities. Um, in fact, um, some of the most striking work on the analysis of masculinity has come from the colonised and post-colonial world. Um, the most sustained project of research on masculinities, for instance, anywhere in the world, has come from South America, um, centred in the work of uh, José Olavaria in Chile, who's coordinated um, uh, continent-wide networks uh, in studies of masculinity. 
Um, some of the most interesting contemporary work on this issue is coming from South Africa, uh, partly in the context of the HIV-AIDS crisis um, and partly through the grappling with the post-apartheid issues of racial and class inequality um, in the work of people like Copano Ratele, who is producing some of the most interesting work on masculinities right now. Um, but going back historically, I'd also um, think it important to mention uh, the historical cultural analysis of one of the uh, produced by one of the most important public intellectuals in India, uh, that is Ashish Nandi, who published in the early 80s before masculinities became a significant issue in gender studies in the global north, a wonderful book called The Intimate Enemy that analysed the dynamics of masculinity in the process of colonisation and showed not only the way that colonial conquest and rule shifted the ground for the production of masculinities among the colonised, among Indian uh, men, but also shifted the ground for the production of masculinities among the colonisers. And that also is very important. There is uh, an impact of colonialism and empire on gender relations in the metropole as well and among the colonising populations that come out from the metropole. So all of those debates, I think, are now resources for us in grappling with a wide range of gender issues. And they point to, I guess, um, what we could think of as a second uh, major resource that we have, which is the, the richer history of gender struggles, given that feminist analysis has always been connected with social struggles around gender inequality. We now have a richer history to draw on if we take into account, into full account, the multiple dynamics of gender change which are shown in histories around the colonised and post-colonial world. Um, different dynamics of change from those familiar in Europe and North America, different political alliances, for instance, with independence movements themselves and the very complex relationships of feminism to post-colonial regimes. I want to mention just one example of this, um, and that is the analysis of a, a what has always been a, a central feminist issue, that is gender-based violence, violence against women. Conquest itself involved direct violence. Um, when I was in primary school, we were taught a little bit of Australian history and we were taught that the white occupation of Australia was a completely peaceful process um, involving the displacement of a primitive uh, culture by a more advanced one. 19th century journalists knew better. Um, this is a 19th century uh, picture of what was actually going on on the colonial frontier in Australia. Well, the artists sort of imagined got mixed up between different native costumes uh, and got some kind of exotic South Sea Islands story mixed into the Australian story, but that's really what was going on, and those are actually gum trees in the background. I can't see any kangaroos, but um, it was daylight. Um, so violence 
is endemic in the construction of colonial societies, and and uh, Sarnajit Guha forcefully argued, violence uh, remained the basis of colonial rule throughout the hundreds of years. Um, the the point, not that this in itself is an example of violence against women, but it's a form of violence that intimately involves the construction of masculinities. But the point does apply to violence against women, as argued particularly by Amina Mama, one of the important contemporary feminist thinkers uh, from sub-Saharan Africa, uh, now also working in the global north, um, who's argued forcefully uh, that we can't understand patterns of gender-based violence in contemporary Africa without understanding their connections to the violence of colonisation and to the social upheavals that were produced by colonial and post-colonial social processes. And I want to give very briefly uh, an example of that issue from another continent, um, from Central America. Um, Dealing arising specifically in the post-colonial world uh, a couple of hundred years, uh, in fact, after the uh, independence struggles in Mexico. This is a picture taken close to the northern Mexican city of Ciudad Juarez, Juarez City, which is a border town, uh, a major uh, transport hub and transshipment point for uh, goods and chattels coming from uh, South America and Central America to the massive wealthy market uh, in the United States. Um, Juarez is um, basically a neoliberal city. Uh, It's grown enormously in population in the last generation. Uh, It's one of the sites of the Maquila export factory economy um, and is also an important site for that postmodern global uh, industry, the drug trade, um, around which there is actually a great deal of violence. As uh, everyone will know, there are rival uh, uh, enterprises, export enterprises, uh, each of which has uh, recruits young men to form private armies. So there is a great deal of violence both between the drug cartels and between the cartels and the state. In that context, um, about 20 years ago, um, a, a local woman um, called attention to the number of bodies of young women, many of them workers in, the, uh, in those new export factories, which were turning up in the desert around the city, often with signs of very great brutality on them. This is a picture of the discovery of a group of bodies uh, in the desert Um, And so many uh, deaths of women were documented that Mexican feminists began talking about femicide on the analogy of genocide, the collective violence uh, against women, and called for uh, solidarity from feminists in other parts of the world. The mothers of the disappeared and dead women uh, created a form of memory, a form of memorialization using the symbol of the pink cross, 
which then became the international symbol of the solidarity movement, um, trying to put pressure on the Mexican state uh, to intervene and change the impunity uh, which which had uh, characterised this um, wave of murders of women. And that uh, I, I was actually involved in a solidarity group in Sydney, which was set up in response to that call um, to spread information about it and help generate outside pressure, which has had indeed some effect. So in, we, we have then um, a richer history of gender struggle than we would um, have been able to draw on if we were drawing only on the northern-centred economy of knowledge. And growing out of that is the third uh, resource um, that I want to, to mention. It's a logical consequence of that, that we have a worldwide archive, a global archive of analyses, documentation and theory that has been produced by feminist intellectual workers around the world, outside or on the edges of the northern-centred economy of knowledge. We have, in fact, a wide and deep history of feminist thinking which can become an intellectual resource of a very considerable scale. And I just want to sketch a few examples of this. The woman on the left, Kartini, is a national heroine in Indonesia, pioneering feminist educator, uh, critic, critic of, um, uh, of gender hierarchy and uh, colonial government, um, the iconic figure, if you like, in the history of women's organising in Indonesia, hardly known outside her own country, but I think an important figure in the world history of feminism. Um, I could mention a contemporary of Kartini's, He Yinzhen, in China, um, hardly known except to specialists as yet, but the author of quite stunning socialist feminist analyses of patriarchy, capitalism, global imperialism, 100 years ago in China. Um, and then coming a little forward, we have the women of the May the 4th movement in China in the 1920s who made important cultural breakthroughs. This is one of the authors of that movement, Lu Yin, um, who in their context made the breakthrough of bringing women's experience into public literary form, which is the kind of thing that women's liberation in the global north was uh, trying to do too. Um, in a later generation. And then if we go from you know, history of 100 years ago up to contemporary Asia, contemporary South Asia, uh, we're looking at people like Pina Agarwal, important figure in development economics, and I think perhaps the most important feminist theorist of our generation in the world, uh, though one who's hardly recognised in many discussions of feminist theory, um, in the mainstream economy of knowledge. One of her crucial contributions is to document the importance of issues about land in understanding gender, gender relations 
in the contemporary world. And that's reinforced by social movements in other parts of the world too. You've probably heard of the landless workers movement in Brazil or South America more widely. This is a demonstration by the MST, the landless uh, people's movement in Brazil, but it's the women of the landless people's movement uh, demonstrating about gender issues in relation to land. Okay, those are the kinds of resources that we now have. I want now to finish up by thinking about the process that's involved in reshaping knowledge about gender on a global scale in the light of the shape of the problem that I've outlined and the, the, the resources that we now have. And I'm arguing essentially on the basis that making of knowledge is a social process it's a form of labour. It requires a workforce. Um, we need to think about the nature of that workforce and how to nourish and support it, how to nurture that workforce on a world scale in the full knowledge that a feminist knowledge project practically everywhere in the world is still going against the grain and working in institutions which are predominantly patriarchal as is true of the world university system as we now know it. Now, the global workforce of gender for gender analysis, for the development of knowledge about workforce, is by comparison with other domains of knowledge, uh, unusually diverse. It is genuinely diverse. It involves femocrats, for instance, in the United Nations uh, organisation. It involves social movements, such as this, it involves university systems. Um, it involves forms of meeting between those different groups, of which perhaps the most important uh, examples to know about are the feminist encuentros, encounters, uh, continent-wide encounters, which have been going on in Latin America uh, for a couple of decades and which, are, uh, for people who don't know about them, are really important uh, to study. Um, to, to understand both the difficulties and possibilities of international organising in this realm of knowledge. It's also the case, I think, that the, there has been a slow rebalancing or reshaping of the worldwide workforce in gender studies as knowledge production projects about gender have proliferated around the global periphery um, the scale of knowledge production in this area from the Global South has been increasing, although, as Celia's presentation uh, indicated, this is not yet easily registered in the journals of the Global North. Nevertheless, it is happening. I've mentioned the importance, for instance, of Latin American work in the field of masculinities, um, and I've mentioned the importance of work from Southern Africa in the same field. This is an example of that kind of work, one of the, the finest collections of research on the gender of men and masculinities from anywhere in the world, a collection uh, of work from across Southern Africa. And in the course of... Um, 
um, putting that expanded and restructured workforce to work, um, getting it in business, we do actually have to rethink the object of knowledge in gender studies, I think, to take much more account than we have been so far of the extent to which gender is now formed in global arenas. Um, and I do think that, that most of our paradigms, most of our familiar forms of, of theorising the making of gender have tended to have a, a kind of local framing, whatever the, the locality might be. Uh, we now need to think of this as a globally extended process. Significant parts of it happening in new global arenas such as transnational corporations. Um, here's one of my favourite teaching images. It's a, an image from an American uh, business magazine, um, an interview with a, a leading figure um, in North American business, and obviously it's a visual joke, um, but it does somehow express something of the consciousness of the corporate leadership as people who hold up the world. And uh, part of this is a process of institutionalising patterns of masculinity that genuinely operate um, in transnational space. But to come to a, a rather different level, um, gender reassignment, gender transition, subject that is of great interest to me, of course, um, has also been restructured globally uh, in the neoliberal economy. Um, it has been restructured as an export industry for certain countries, most prominently Thailand, which is now the world centre of gender reassignment surgery, an outgrowth of a, a cosmetic surgery industry which now is basically sustained by international clients, what is sometimes somewhat awkwardly called medical tourism. Um, but you cannot now think about questions of the relationship between reassignment, uh, money, um, the monetary resources uh, that are available to transsexual women without thinking about the globalisation of the process and its its impact on the availability and the understanding uh, of what reassignment means. So those are in terms of the, the knowledge, the workforce and the rethinking of knowledge that now has to occur as we shift uh, our thinking more and more into global arenas. But because our knowledge of gender is always connected with social movements, with practice, with social struggles around equality, we also have to think at the same time of how we work in global arenas, of how we work politically in global arenas. And here there are genuinely new problems which aren't the same as thinking about the connection between knowledge and movement activism within a local community or even a national arena. So we have to think about... Um, the connections between different uh, social traditions, between different gender orders, between the feminisms that arise 
in different political, geographical, economic contexts. Uh, we need to think about how we work politically across long distances, how to sustain connections, um, how to make resources available. Um, we need to think about the role of abstraction in the realm of knowledge in, distant, in uh, political work at a distance. And as Chilla Bulbeck, an Australian colleague who was one of the pioneers of thinking about exactly these issues, um, as uh, the focus of her work was how we deal with political diversity on a world scale, something that I know will have concerned many of you here and which now seems to me a crucial issue for the whole realm of feminist thought. Well, one consequence of recognising diversity, recognising the different knowledge projects that I've talked about, the different logics of knowledge production, is that there can be no one southern theory of gender. So this is absolutely not what the... I, I am absolutely not here to argue that there is a southern theory of gender, which we should all now assent to. Not at all. It would be arrogant, unconscionably arrogant, to propose that. What I do want to argue for, and I want to, uh, to urge, is that as knowledge workers, which I guess the great majority of people in this room are, we should take our democratic commitments in um, relation to gender as well as other issues, we should take our democratic commitments into the realm of knowledge as well as into the realm of uh, political struggle. And that requires us to think about knowledge in sometimes in somewhat different ways. So we're familiar, I guess, with the idea um, of solidarity work um, at the political level, such as the group, uh, the movement that arose around the femicide in Ciudad Juarez. But we also need to think about solidarity in the production of knowledge, about international solidarity in knowledge production too. And that poses issues for knowledge workers in relatively rich countries like Britain and rich parts of the global periphery like Australia because we have resources collectively and individually. Um, we have some responsibilities in this area and I want to propose a um, very brief three-point program for intellectual workers in rich countries. Don't worry, it's very short. One, learn. Um, we have to learn from intellectual workers in the global periphery, in the majority world, um, paying attention to the global archive of knowledge that has been produced outside the formal economy of knowledge as well as inside. Secondly, we need to expand our own knowledge projects in the light of what's going on in the majority world, around the majority world. Um, and thirdly, we need to give practical support. And that can be difficult for all the reasons I've just been sketching. We need to be inventive, actually, in finding new ways to give solidarity and practical support. 
And from that point of view, I'm very pleased indeed that the feminist theory uh, journal collective uh, has taken on the responsibility of, um, of supporting feminist intellectual work from the Global South as an explicit project. And that, I think, is, in fact, entirely within the great tradition of feminism as a revolutionary project in knowledge as well as in social life. It's a revolution that now is occurring on a world scale. And our intellectual work, I think, has to become adequate to the practical issues that the global movement faces. There we are. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rowan, for this inspiring talk, but also for your three-point program, which is very useful. Um, uh, we will now open the floor for questions. We have about 20 minutes for questions, and uh, we have some roving microphones available, so please wait for the stewards to come to you with the microphone before you ask your question. Please also let us know your name, your affiliation, before you ask the question, and please ask a brief question. I've been encouraged to be proactive and willing to interrupt someone who embarks <laughs> on a lengthy speech. So um, do we have some question for Rowan, please? Okay. There's one question here. There's in the front, in the green. There's one question in the front row over there. That will be the second question. Do we have a third question? And we have a third question down here. Hello. Thank you, Raywen, very much for that wonderful um, um, uh, talk. Um, my name's Sylvia Chant. I'm a professor of geography. I uh, see so you've cited a few geographers tonight. Um, uh, and um, I've got a couple of questions, really. First of all, uh, as someone who started out in the early 1980s working on gender and development and doing a lot of field work, and in fact I've, I've worked in three different uh, regions of the Global South now, it's always been part of my mission, if you like, to uh, basically converse with, share ideas with uh, my so-called sisters uh, and brothers uh, in the Global South. And, and actually, that, I think, process has been going on, perhaps particularly with people involved in uh, um, uh, development studies, so to speak. Um, one thing I'd just like to ask you is whether you feel that you've seen real progress uh, in recent decades. Uh, what role do you think think um, the UN platforms have played in this. Um, is there a role for the internet in helping to democratize uh, knowledge production and sharing? And then what are we going to do about language, which seems to be one of the big stumbling blocks, particularly for people in this country who can rarely talk more than, uh, speak in more than one language? Thank you. We have a question up there, please. Uh, yeah, so my name is Rochelle Bascara, and I'm a PhD student at the Birkbeck Philosophy Department. Um, so uh, obviously the dominance of the global north in gender studies is uh, a microcosm of the larger patterns of marginalization of the world at large. So, But what, what makes this uh, replication of hierarchies particularly interesting for gender studies is that it's in part founded on the sensitivity to power imbalances because feminism is... Um, Founded, grounded on the idea that it, uh, the sexes are equal. But at the same time, um, feminist theory, in order to flourish, needs to su 
subscribe and pander to uh, standards set up in academia or by um, dead white men? Is this a sign that gender studies has been co-opted? How can it maintain its legitimacy as an academic discipline if it refused to uh, subscribe or actively challenge the established forms of knowledge? Thank you. Thank you. And a third question down there, please. Uh, so I'm Reva Yunus. I'm from the University of Warwick, a second year PhD student at uh, sociology. Uh, you mentioned that uh, the current political, um, I mean, this era, this movement is kind of unprecedented because of the kind of right-wing uh, governments that have been elected. And that's happened in India as well. Uh, but for me, uh, what defines this new kind of political movement is the kind of uh, new kind of relations between uh, elite from former colonies and not only with uh, other form, with marginalized groups in other former colonies like Africa, so uh, corporate, big corporates from India and uh, marginalized groups in African countries, but also in former colonizers. So it's actually, uh, there is this case of an uh, Indian uh, corporate trying to uh, take land from an Aboriginal community in Australia. And so I was thinking that uh, it's, it's a very recent, it's an ongoing struggle. Uh, so the thing is that how does... Um, this kind of discussion of decolonizing gender, uh, how does it lead to new kinds of feminist solidarities across borders uh, to support this kind of struggle, say, uh, by the Aboriginal communities in Australia, but also the same uh, powerful groups within India also resist decolonizing of education and also processes of uh, validation and generation of knowledge. So how, do, how does this kind of a discussion lead to solidarities uh, for those kinds of struggles? Thank you. Uh, also, sorry, one one request: when you um, the, all the photographs of the uh, scholars that you showed, if you could also like include the names because I can't figure out spellings and I can't look them up. <laughs> sorry. Uh, I actually have one more slide. I can do that with the names. <laughs> now we're sitting in front of it, of course. <laughs> Well, we have Sorry. wonderful three we'll, questions. So. We'll, we'll move, move around. Yes, um, how many days do we have for this? Um, a lifetime. Look, yes, a lifetime still to come. Um, thank you for, for all of those questions. They're all thought-provoking and, and um, much more than I can deal with adequately. <clears throat> um, in relation to the first uh, question, I... Um, do I, I think I um, have underplayed the significance of that experience in development studies and in feminist work, particularly in development? Um, and uh, had I but world enough in time um, um, been going more in more detail into the conditions for um, the, the the growth of a knowledge workforce uh, around the post-colonial world. One of the really important conditions for that is the rise of literacy, the increase in literacy, and the growth of um, uh, girls and women's participation uh, in formal education, uh, which is, I think, one of the great triumphs of modern feminism, um, is to persuade the developmental states to invest seriously in the education of girls and women. And that's 
uh, as you know, involved all kinds of compromises and um, 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 sometimes un- unhappy outcomes, but it's really a tremendous uh, achievement. Um, so in those respects, I think there actually has been progress, and part of it is coordinated through the UN system, um, through UNESCO as well as through UN Women. Um, that's true, and I've um, had not nearly as much as experience of, as you have in that world, but a little. And I have to say, I think... Uh, I think Australia invented the term femocrat uh, to describe women who work in uh, bureaucracies in the feminist cause, but about the most impressive group of femocrats I've ever seen are the, the women working in United Nations agencies. So there's a tremendous asset there, and I think they are an important part of the intellectual workforce, although they're not usually publishing in academic journals or recognised uh, for theory production. Nevertheless, production of theory and concepts is happening in that world too. Um, in that respect, I think I, I, I would claim to have seen progress over the last generation or so um, in um, the spread of uh, uh, um, uh, uh, the growth of an intellectual workforce in the spread of more sophisticated ideas about gender um, but those are also that is also the generation in which we've seen the rise of global neoliberalism, the restructuring of economies, the decline of the welfare state in the global north and the developmental state in the global south. Um, in other words, the decline of some of the mechanisms on which uh, fem- many feminist projects originally de- depended. Um, so there's, there's a tide working against... Um, the development of feminism, feminist policy and ideas, as well as uh, significant progress. And I don't know how we calculate the, the, the resultant of, of those changes. Um, yes, I think there is a, an important organising role for the internet. Um, dealing with the internet, we can never forget that it's it was created by the United States security apparatus for use in nuclear war. Uh, it's been largely taken over by commercial interests, by very large and uh, fairly ruthless corporations, and it's constantly under surveillance by the security services of the United States, European powers, the Russians, the Chinese, and so forth. So there are limits to the usefulness of the internet, but I I couldn't operate myself as an intellectual worker without it now, I have to say, and I'm sure that's true of of most people here. In um, response to the the question about um, the, the, the paradox, if you like, of feminists working um, or attempting to work uh, in an institutional system like uh, the world university system, which is founded on hierarchy. Um, I think, look, that that is a paradox. It's a genuinely difficult one to which there is no known answer. Um, but it's one that has always been with us um, for just about every form of feminism except an extreme separatism. 
that as soon as you are working in the structures of the local state, um, in electoral politics, um, as soon as you're working inside bureaucracies like the Femocrats, uh, or in formal knowledge institutions like universities and research institutes, you're facing that kind of issue. Um, and, and every such project involves compromises and backtracking uncertainty arguments over the correct way to go. That's been happening as long as I've known gender politics, and I don't think it will is likely ever to change. Um, and it does compromise democratic commitments. I, I, I entirely uh, agree with that. It's uncomfortable. Um, so I've tried, for instance, um, one of my um, really um, sad memories is of the time when I tried uh, to run a feminist theory course, gender theory course. Um, this was quite some time ago. Uh, totally without hierarchy, within a university, within a degree program, but totally without hierarchy, um, uh, trying to abandon the distinction between academics and students, trying to set up you know, collective knowledge projects. And um, in, in a way, uh, I mean, it was very instructive because uh, the course actually didn't work. Uh, very well. There was too much contradiction between the requirements to produce uh, certification grades and so forth, and the assumptions of a shared, uh, democratically run knowledge project where the students would have as much authority as me, the professor in charge. Um, so, uh, and yet, out of that uh, failed course. Uh, came really exciting knowledge projects. Uh, that, for instance, that course gave rise to the very first research that was ever done in an Australian university uh, of, of feminist work on construction of masculinities um, by a research self-managed research group in that um, in that course consisting of I think six women, uh, all of whom uh, were. Uh, mature age students, all of whom were or had been married, um, a group which helped to create a reputation for our sociology factory, uh, our sociology department, as the divorce factory of Northern Sydney, <laughs> um, and uh, they did absolutely terrific work. So you'll always get partial successes and partial failures when you're dealing with that kind of contradiction. But it seems to me a project always worth trying always worth continuing with um, and over time can put pressure on the institution to change uh, and create more space for other radical knowledge projects. At least that's my hope. Um, the third question about the, the, the rise of uh, corporate elites in post-colonial countries like uh, India and their consequences, and we might also say the same now for China to some extent for uh, elites in Southeast Asia. Um, those are, you know, genuine complexities in the kind of picture that I've been drawing, um, and must become increasingly important uh, given the growing weight 
especially of India and China, but also to some extent of Brazil and South Africa in the global economy. Um, and it's perfectly true um, that the, um, the, the privileged and powerful groups who are given weight in the world by the growth of those corporations and the, indeed the growth of the capitalist economy in those countries... Um, those are overwhelmingly men, and they're men usually without the slightest commitment uh, to a politics of gender equality. Uh, and their activities can be uh, extremely problematic uh, from the point of view of gender justice uh, in the countries that they come from and in their impact on other parts of the world too, given that so much of the corporate economy now is transnational and involves flows of capital investment uh, across national boundaries, um, where, I mean, it's a familiar point, uh, but one that we, we constantly have to recognise, that the structures of social control that were set up in national states and which provided restraints on national-level corporations and the corporate economy have largely been escaped by transnational capital and we have not yet evolved uh, systems of social control over the operations uh, of capital on a world scale that have anything like uh, the grip uh, that, that local states were once able to exert. So that's a, a hugely important set of, of issues. I don't know that I have any great wisdom to offer on it at the moment, uh, except to say that that's the kind of issue um, about gender relations and gender politics that we really now need to be grappling with, that all of us need to be thinking about, not just a small minority. Thank you. We have another couple of minutes, and I know there is at least one question at the front here. Are there more questions? Can I see a show of hands? Okay. Why don't we just take the last three questions? So there is one at the front, uh, Claire, one back there, and up there in the red shirt, please. Thank you. Hi, thanks. Um, I'm Claire Hemmings. I'm teach here at the Gender Institute. Thank you for your talk. Um, I was curious about your decision to counter the particular politics and hegemony uh, of epistemology that you were outlining and that um, I think is a really serious issue that, that needs clear grappling with. I was curious at your decision to counter that um, in large part, though not exclusively, with a focus on individual authors uh, from different places and spaces um, for two reasons. One, because, of course, um, how those individuals are presented, uh, we may differ in an interpretation. So, for example, I know because of my uh, colleague, um, Mia Fujina, who, who works at the Gender Institute, that Hujin is uh, an anarchist feminist rather than a socialist feminist, for example. So, uh, or that uh, Fatima Manisi uh, is a materialist uh, Marxist feminist, and so on. So that, so that already the interpretation and presentation of those individuals can't be understood as straightforwardly representative of particular places and spaces. Um, but also because, um, you know, the other thing that has been generated in those uh, in, uh, across the world have been embedded feminist knowledge projects of the kind like feminist theory so 
you know, you have Amina Mama, but, you know, uh, she was responsible for founding and keeping going the journal Feminist Africa, you know, which in some senses is perhaps more significant as the kind, uh, I would want to say, as a feminist knowledge project, uh, more significant in terms of staging debate rather than a kind of do we or don't we, have we or haven't we heard of, do we or don't we particularly engage with, with her. So, And partly I think because one of the other things that happens in a in a privileging of the global north is not just particular kinds of knowledge, but also a, a star system within which already picks and chooses from those spaces who gets to count. Thank you. And a very brief question over there, please. Uh, and if I could ask you to keep it brief, because we're approaching end of the lecture. Thank you. Good evening, and thank you for your talk. Uh, my name is Hannah. I'm a student here at the Gender Institute. Um, I would just like to raise the question of language again very briefly uh, regarding two factors. So the first is how do we broaden feminist theory to include uh, more theorists from around the world without entrenching uh, the English language as the lingua franca um, further um, and the hegemony of the English language? Um, and B, what about the politics of translation as well? If we were to read other theorists in English, that would also raise a lot of problems. Thank you, Hannah. And a question at the top there. Is it just on? Oh. Hi, I'm Kamal Gupta. I'm an activist, artist, occasional academic. Um, the question's really short and simple. You touched on connections between... One of your sites seemed to be the kind of encounter between the colonial and the post-colonial and the, the global metropole. And so that just made me think of two things. And one of them is that diasporic networks in the kind of most classic sense are already somewhat a part of that, but I'd be interested in your thoughts on how that can go further and also potential problems with it. I say this because I'm, I'm involved in a project that's got... Indian academics in India, Indian academics in, and activists in America and here, and I know it's not the only project of its kind. So that's one. And the other like sub-bit of that is, in less traditional way, you touched on um, trans-tourism and trans-medicalisation stuff, and it's beginning to look like, well, not beginning, but to make the idea of diaspora a bit more, maybe twisting it out of too much context, but thinking about trans communities in that context and the knowledge the knowledge of gender and diversity, I hate that word, knowledge of gender and violence and power, that there are definitely connections being made there too. Thank you. So wow. Um, in one minute or In less. one minute, right. Um, on the question of my prioritizing of, of individuals, I'm very conscious of the, the paradoxes and, and limits of that. That was a kind of pedagogic strategy of um, giving people a point of reference or a point of entry. Um, but I did try in the later part of the talk, and maybe too hurriedly, um, to think more collectively um, about intellectual workforces and the groups who, who are involved in in knowledge production. Um, and Feminist Africa would be a lovely example of that, without question. Um, in fact, the network that that created across Africa is a really impressive example of feminist internationalism. Um, on the, the question of language, um, 
and the hegemony of English, uh, that's that's a huge problem, um, I think. And uh, I, I have another map, um, uh, like the journal map, um, showing the um, hegemony of um, scientific publication in English, and it's even more striking than than the journal map. Um, so it's a massive problem, not easy to grapple with either, because we can't simply say that English is the language of power and, um, say, Spanish and Portuguese are not, because uh, they are also imperial languages. And it is also the case that in, in um, some contexts, access to an international language is really important for marginalised groups within a national context. Um, so a, a difficult and important issue which bears much thinking about. On the, the question of diasporic feminism uh, and the kinds of networks that can be uh, created through the agency of uh, diasporic intellectual workers. Yes, I played that down, again, uh, as a kind of pedagogical decision, uh, partly because um, those, uh, the people involved in that kind of uh, work or in that situation tend to be better known uh, to people in the global north uh, than people who have... Um, who are mainly uh, working in the global south, um, but uh, in in trying to map international connections in gender studies, uh, there's no question that uh, diasporic or migratory intellectuals have been enormously important in opening up the kinds of issues I've been talking about, um, in developing critiques of northern dominance uh, in the area. Uh, and in catalyzing work uh, in other parts of the world too. Um, so for the kind of uh, uh, solidarity work in the realm of knowledge that I was arguing for right at the end, um, then I think uh, diasporic and migratory intellectuals uh, are indeed really important uh, in that scene, and I would want to acknowledge them um, uh, both for the contribution they've already made and for their potentially strategic role in the future. Cool. Thank you. Thank you for uh, your answers to these questions. Thank you for, to the audience for asking the questions. Thank you, everyone, for coming. And thank you very much for giving us uh, the pleasure of your talk. Thank you. Okay.